So who here, when they were younger, did the same thing I did? I used to pretend that the car I was driving in had like magical abilities to become invisible. Did anybody do that? You were in an invisible car? Okay, cool, one or two, it's great. Overactive imagination, but my parents, they kind of like perpetuated this because they told us that our car had this magical ability. And if we all together as, set, like, as a family said abracadabra and then pushed the button four on like the little dashboard, our car would turn invisible, right? Classic. So we'd do that, we'd all be like abracadabra four. And then we'd test it out, test the theory to see if we were actually invisible. And that just involved us like looking out the window and waving at people really obnoxiously. And no one would wave back at us as children. And so we were like, oh my gosh, we are invisible, wild. But really looking back on it, you know, we're just hitting the car radio preset and then people are rude. So hey, there you go, <laughs> not really invisible. But maybe, maybe you weren't like me, maybe instead, you like to stand you know, like at supermarkets and the grocery stores before the doors and do like the Star Wars thing, you know? Where you're like, zoom, and then it opens up in front of you and you're like, I used the force. How cool is that, right? Maybe you did none of those things. And maybe you're out there wondering, you know, how does having an invisible magic car or using the force at supermarkets actually go along with what we're talking about in Acts 19 today? That's a fair question, and we're gonna get into it right now. Maybe you can, can make the connections as we talk about Acts 19 this morning. So when we last left the Apostle Paul and his whole ensemble, they were in Corinth, right? And then they traveled to Ephesus, popped in there for a second, met up with Priscilla and Aquila, and then Paul had to leave unexpectedly. So Paul left Ephesus, and he ends chapter 18 by saying, you know, if God wills it, I'll be coming back. I wanna come back to Ephesus. And now we're in chapter 19, and guess what? God wills it, and Paul is headed back to Ephesus. And that's where we're at this morning, is in Ephesus. So I'm gonna set the mood for you guys just a little bit um, with the city of Ephesus. Like, what are we actually talking about here? So Ephesus is um, located in modern-day Turkey, like nowadays, and actually is just in ruins. The city of Ephesus did not last throughout history, but in you know, its prime, Ephesus was about 400,000 people in population. It was a big city, and it was a hub of international trade. It's a port city, so all this trade is going on. And um, there's a couple of pictures I wanna show you real quick, just so you can envision what Ephesus might have been like in the day. Like I said, it's all ruins now, but we've got this like port area, it's a port city. If you wanna go to the next one. This was a big amphitheater, and part of the text that we're not talking about today um, talks about this very theater. And then the next one is a representation of the Temple of Artemis, which again is mentioned in chapter 19 multiple times. It's kind of cool to see these reconstructions. But they're in ruins today. The port and trade dried up, and economic downfall hit. Big theaters like that amphitheater you saw was set to ruin as the population dwindled and the economic trade decreased. And like I said, it's home to the great temple of Artemis, which again, right now is just a single pillar that kind of sticks up, um, but you can see it recreated here. Um, Artemis was this like great huntress in the Greek culture. There, she was this huntress, a goddess, and she represented in the Greek culture a like a divine power of fertility and power in the world. And this temple is mentioned multiple times in uh, 
Acts chapter 19. But just two more quick things about Ephesus this morning. I love giving history, I love giving context, so you're always gonna get like a weird little history lesson from me. Um, But Ephesus is an important international trade city, like I was saying. It's a gateway to the world, so whether you're traveling east to west or west to east, you can stop in Ephesus. And some people, they're on their way to Rome and they find themselves lured in by what they've experienced, what they've seen in Ephesus. Or maybe they're on their way to Galatia and they found themselves drawn in by the opportunities at Ephesus. Ephesus had this like gravitational pull on the culture around it. People who were searching for something ended up in Ephesus. And it has a very similar story to its sister city, Corinth. So we mentioned Corinth earlier. If, uh, if you're looking at the Aegean Sea, you've got Ephesus on this side, and then Big Sea, and then Corinth over here. And they kind of mirrored each other. They had these, this like draw to them that people wanted to go to these port cities. For Corinth, the draw was all about sensual desire. You wanted to go into to Corinth because it had promises of sex and pleasure. But in Ephesus, it drew people in with this dark magic. There was this dark sorcery at work in Ephesus, and it drew people in because it promised power and control. If you said enough incantations, if you bought enough abracadabras, which is a real thing, by the way, it's an incantation you can buy. If you bought enough incantations or abracadabras, you could control the divine powers that be. If you bought enough terracotta of the temple of Artemis and buried it in your yard, you could be blessed or fertile. You could buy curses that would help you take down your enemies. You could control the divine. Shakespeare even said it best when he talked about Ephesus. He said, Ephesus is full of dark working sorcerers that change the minds of men. So you're starting to see the connections, right? There's this deep magic kind of at work in Ephesus, these sorcerers. It's really interesting. And that's why we get to jump into our text today. We're in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to start with verse 8. So if you want to turn there, we'll get that set up. But uh, we're starting in verse 8 because like most chapters in Acts, it is just packed full of stuff, right? So we're going to focus on this middle story today um, of the sorcerers at work in Ephesus. But if you uh, like us on Facebook, make sure you do that and follow along this week. There's a weekly video called First Poor, and First Poor this week is going to cover verses 1 through 7. So we're not going to hit those this morning, but make sure you tune in this week to, to hear what that is about. So let's start in verse 8 as we jump in. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. For two years, God is changing lives through the work of Paul. Isn't that incredible? For two years, Paul's preaching and the miracles that God is doing through him are impacting this culture, so much so that in verse 10, what does it say? All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's like they're in Ephesus, this place full of dark magic. And God says, hey, guess what? I'm going to show you the real deal. 
I'm going to show you the real power in this world. And it's not like these parlor tricks. It's not like these cheap tricks or illusions. It's not this dark magic that you're playing with. It's the power of God. And God's revealing that through Paul to this Ephesian community. It's like he's speaking their language, right? He's interacting with what they know, with what they think they know, and that they're comfortable with. He's showing them this great power through miracles. And he's moving through Paul to go toe-to-toe with their view of God, with their view of power, with their view of control. It's kind of fascinating to look at, right? It's a really interesting story. So let's keep reading on. We're going to keep diving in. Verse 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out the evil spirits in the town tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What a story. Jeez. I don't, I mean, I haven't been in many fights, many fights, um, but I know that if you end the fight naked and bleeding, you probably haven't won, right? I would just guess that's not a winning story for you. And I doubt that they're talking about this story in kids' church today. It's a little much, a little bloody, a little violent. But uh, the seven dudes in this story get beaten and bloodied. Yikes. It's a dramatic story, but there's much to gather and learn from it this morning. I mean, what are these guys out there doing? What's the whole point of the story? Well, they're out there trying to use the name of Jesus to make themselves great, to heal to drive out dark forces, to make themselves look powerful. They're using the name of Jesus in a counterfeit way. They don't have faith in him. They don't follow the way of Jesus, but they're using his name nonetheless. And guess what? It it backfired, right? The demon-possessed guy is like, who are you? We don't know you. Counterfeits aren't just fake. They're not lasting. Their fulfillment doesn't last. They don't satisfy. They cheapen the true thing that they represent. I mean, growing up, whose family here brought or bought off-brand cereal? Anybody off-branders? Nice. My family was kind of a snob. We always got like the on-brand cereal. But I'd go to my friend's house, and her family bought off-brand cereal. And so I'd go in there in the morning expecting to pour a little bowl of, of Lucky Charms. And what do I get? Marshmallow mateys, right? Instead of Apple Jacks, you got Apple Zings. I'd go to scarf down some Fruit Loops. It'd be Tutti Fruities, right? Our off-brand cereals. They're good, right? They're not bad. They're close, but not close enough sometimes. At some point, you realize that the counterfeits in your life do not last. God's design is often counterfeited in our lives, isn't it? Think of how the things of God are cheapened by us and cheapened by others. God offers love. We say lust. Lust is enough. It's cheaper, it's easier. God offers holiness. We say happiness. It's easier to get, and sometimes I can buy it, right? God offers his spirit. We say other spirits will do. I can numb the pain. I can take matters into my own hands. I can self-medicate. 
Do we not find ourselves more often than not settling for counterfeits in our lives? And don't get me wrong, counterfeits work for a season or for a time or for a relationship or for a moment, but eventually, just like Ephesus, just like the temple of Artemis, just like the men in this story, they will fail and they will fall. So how do we combat a counterfeit in our faith? Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews, you know that these guys tried to, to heal this person in Jesus' name and got, got beaten. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and grew in power. One of the biggest counterfeits that we can hold on to in our faith is this. I don't need to surrender all of my life to God, just some of it. The greatest fears that we have in the Christian faith kind of reflect this, that I don't need to surrender all of my life to God, just some of it. We say, I don't want to confess or overcome my sin. I don't want to surrender my idols and live life in obedience, no matter the cost. I don't want to give my all to God. I want to keep these things back. What's the answer then? How do we combat these counterfeits in our faith? Well, we read it in verse 17. Look back at your text, verse 17. I make people in Urbana talk back to me all the time and I ask them questions. So what does it say that they do in verse 17? It says they hold Jesus' name in high honor. A fruitful faith is found with those who fear the name of Jesus. You don't mess with the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is never to be taken lightly by us. We are called to fear the name of Jesus. All throughout scripture, we hear the idea of fearing God. In Proverbs, it talks about walking. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom meaning walking rightly with God in this life. And sometimes that word fear can sound a little off, right? Like, I don't want to be afraid of God. And we all hold this connotation in our mind of what fear is. Like, I'm scared. I'm frightened. I'm anxious. But in scripture, when we're using the word for fear, it's talking about a deep respect, a reverence, an awe that goes beyond just like cognitive understanding of someone. Fearing someone or something in scripture alters the way that you behave. It compels you to change. The fear of God compels you to change. Fearing God isn't about being frightened by him. It's about surrendering to him, being changed by him. In this passage, we see the greatness of God at work, right? The power, the true power of the name of Jesus Christ. God speaks into the city of Ephesus in this powerful way, through miracles, through showing his great might and strength and power and compassion to the people. The name of Jesus is worthy of high honor. I've got a question for us this morning. Have we forgotten the importance of the fear of God? Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus isn't your heavenly homie. Jesus is your Lord. 
Jesus is your savior, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, what we just sang in our songs this morning. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. And there's a few things that happen in our lives when we take the name of Jesus seriously, when we honor his name. And I wanna spend the rest of our time together talking through three different versions of faith that we see in our culture and also in our Christian community. Uh, Two of them are not so great. One of them is what we are striving for as we honor and give reverence and obedience to the name of Jesus. So three versions of faith for all of our note takers out there, get ready. A quick one, two, three for you. First of all, first version of faith that we see in culture and in Christianity is that we believe in a genie God that serves me. Most of us probably don't share in some of these beliefs that we're reading about in like the mainstream Ephesus of magic and dark sorcery and stuff like that. But we do believe in a God of good fortune a God that exists to serve me, to provide for my needs, to show up when I need him. We invite God in on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. We ask him to move in us, to change us, to show up for us, and then we disregard him for the rest of the week. I mean, I see this even in my personal prayers, if I can be honest with you for a second. When I approach God, I often start with the things I need, right? I list off the things that I need from him. Instead of approaching him with reverence and respect and praise first, I say, hey, sovereign God of the universe, can you please give me this thing? Can you give me peace? Can you give me understanding? Can you give me perseverance, a solution to my problems, a resolution to this conflict? And also, can you please do it on my timeline? Thank you very much. And God is faithful in those requests often for me, but what's my heart like in that, you know? Like, what's my heart saying in that? Am I saying that I need God just to show up when I need him? Am I treating God like a vending machine, asking him to fulfill what I need over and over again without approaching him with the correct reverence and honor that he deserves? Or, out of that reverence, am I recognizing who God is? that he's faithful to respond, that he's kind to listen, that he is loving in how he provides for me as I bring my request to him. Am I changed by him as I submit to his authority? The purpose of a prayer, a miracle, a commitment to Jesus is not to make my life better, but to make eternity better by bringing glory to God's great name. That's why we exist, to bring glory to God's great name. This is convicting, right? It's a distinct pattern that we notice in the church and even in scripture. You know, we see it in this story of of the men trying to control the name of Jesus to get what they want, to heal, to maybe have spiritual authority and power. We see it throughout the Old Testament of the Israelites bringing the Ark of the Covenant out without God's permission in battles to try and control and have the power of God without following his commands. It's a pattern as old as time, and it's a distinct pattern in the church at large. Using God, attempting to control God for our purposes instead of surrendering to him moment by moment, day by day. The second version of faith in God that we see is this. We inquire of a cosmic consultant God that just gives me advice, right? We essentially say, listen, 
I'll pick what I like and I'll ignore the rest. God becomes for us kind of like a magic eight ball. You're like, God, I need some advice today. So let me shake you up. Um, ooh, I don't like that advice. Let me try again. You know, God becomes a magic eight ball. We cherry pick scripture all the time to make it fit what we need, what we are comfortable with, what we believe. And sometimes that's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it's with good um, intention behind it. Has anybody ever heard of, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11 being someone's life first? It's a great verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Oftentimes people use that verse to describe, you know, the promises of God. But actually in context, that verse is really, really different. It's talking about the exile of Israel. Israel's exiled because of all the disobedience. And God's saying there is a future for you, but right now there's consequence because you are a disobedient nation. They haven't listened to God's word. They haven't heeded God's plan. They haven't been shaped by God's commandments and they're in exile. When God is just a consultant, you take the parts of faith that you like and you leave the rest alone. You leave the rest behind. God knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper me. So I'll do what I want and God will bless it. That's not how it goes. We ignore the commands that actually lead us towards the blessing. Not our plans, but God's plans of faithful obedience to him. I mean, what happens in the Bible when we get to the chapters on tithing? Sometimes we say, well, does that really mean the same thing today? Do I really have to give that up for God today? Or we get to the passages about living sacrificially. Well, I don't think that applies to like my situation though, right? Or we get to the passages about sexuality. But I mean, that's dated. And, and things are different now. And it's not talking about my relationship or my life. The big problem with the consultant God model is this. You blame God when things don't go the way you want them to. When the advice that you plucked out of context in scripture doesn't come true for you. God is in the business of loving us unconditionally providing for us in hard times, giving us answers when we dig deep into scripture and in relationship with him. But God is to be honored and respected and adored as he does these things, not used by us like a consultant. So both of those two examples of a genie God and a consultant God, those are examples of a counterfeit version of faith in God. And it becomes easy to lean on these counterfeit versions, right? It's, it's comforting, it's soothing, we're in control. It works for me, it's good for me. I can get by with it. But you can get by until you can't anymore. Until you realize that it's cheap, it's fake, it's self-serving, it's self-promoting. It's not giving you what you actually need, the things that actually satisfy you. Actually, it's keeping you from life abundant in Jesus. Life that's marked by freedom as you hand things over to him in humility and surrender. Life that's marked by joy as you praise God. Life marked by wisdom as you walk in step with what the Lord wants. We see this freedom, this life abundant in this passage. In a verse that you might not expect it, it was verse 18. It said that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their deeds, what they had done. They surrendered their sorcery materials before God and burned them, right? 
They burned them before God in an offering, which actually totaled 50,000 days' wage worth of money. It's millions of dollars burnt before God as an offering. And the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is a true model of faith. A version of faith that's true is this. We kneel before our Lord that we serve. We kneel before our Lord that we serve. God is in control. God is in power. God is on the throne. He's in all and through all and above all. He is God. And he deserves our praise and our humility and relinquishing of control of everything in our lives. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross, what, daily, and come after me. Not pick up your cross every Sunday. Not I will pick up your cross for you. Not pick up your cross and blaze your own trail in this world. No, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. Be changed by me. Be formed by me through the power of the Spirit, through believing with your brain and connecting with your heart and doing the things that I do with your hands. Look, the fear of God, honoring the name of Jesus, changing the patterns of your life to put God in the top spot. Those are the building blocks of a foundational faith, a fruitful faith kind of reminds me of how Aslan the lion is described in the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan's the Christ figure, and he's represented in like this powerful and compassionate lion. And one of the characters in the story, she asks, Aslan, is he safe? And that's, that's a great question. He is a lion. I would, I would ask that same question. Is he safe? And another character responds, oh no, <laughs> he is not safe. But he is good. He is Good. God is not your genie. God is not your consultant. But he is your Lord and Savior, and he is full of love and grace and goodness and truth and mercy and great power that we can't even imagine. And that is why we fear and honor the name of Jesus. I mean, why would I want to live any other way than what was exemplified by my Savior? By my Lord, why would I not heed the commands and wisdom and instruction of the sovereign God of the universe? Why would I not follow the Son of God to give him glory in everything I do? I mean, look at the people of Ephesus one more time in our story. They realized the power of God, the true power of God at work, and they brought their old way of life before him on the altar. No matter the cost, they sacrificed their way of life, their income, their security, their control. They put it on the altar before the Lord and burnt it up. Millions and millions of dollars worth of things sacrificed to God. There was nothing too small or too large to withhold from him. They sacrificed these things to live more obediently in step with the great name, the honored name of Jesus. What about us today? What about you what might the fear of God, the awe of God, the reverence of God, the respect of God be compelling you to do? To give up, to surrender over to the feet of Jesus. I wanna leave us this morning with just three questions as we wrap up today, three questions to consider, myself included. I'm also 
convicted as I write and preach today. These three questions are good to come before God in honesty with. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And it's in these times of reflection where we answer these questions for ourselves that we're being honest before God and confessing before him so that we can be changed and purified, given over to him completely. So three questions to ask today. The first is this, what have I done in the name of Jesus? In Matthew seven, Jesus makes a distinction between things done in his name and things done for his will, for the will of God. It's easy to do something and slap the name of Jesus over it, but it's harder to live self-sacrificially for the will of God to be made known in this world, for the kingdom of God to be brought here now. So ask yourself, what have I done in the name of Jesus? Have I done it with the right heart, the right intentions, the right actions, the right motivation? The second question is this, am I only interested in God when I'm interested in what he can do for me? That's a rough one. Am I only interested in God when I'm interested in what he can do for me? And the last question to consider is this. Do I trust God with my daily living, not just my eternity? Do I trust God with my daily living, not just my eternity? What I want us to do this morning is take a few minutes to reflect on these questions. We're gonna sit together and reflect as a community I'll just do one or two minutes of time and don't worry, I'll watch the clock for you. You don't have to stress about it. And I'll come back together and we'll close us in prayer, okay? But sit there and answer honestly with God about these questions, about where you're at with him and what kind of faith you're actively doing in your life throughout the week. Where do you kind of fall in here? Go ahead and take a minute, two minutes and I'll close us out in prayer together in a few. So Paul, he, he leaves Ephesus after this story, pretty much immediately after this story is done. But there's a whole book of the Bible written to the church in Ephesus called Ephesians. And there's this great prayer written to the church 
that we are just talking about, the church in Ephesus. And I wanna pray that over our congregation, over you today. So would you, would you stand with me as we pray? Um, would you also do this too? I just want us to model today what we've been talking about. You know, We're standing in reverence of God, standing for something important. Or if you, if you wanna kneel, feel free to kneel as well in humility before God, but also if you don't mind, would you, as we pray, if you're comfortable, put your hands out like this. Let's model surrender. We're not holding tightly to the things that we have, but we're giving things over to God. We're trusting him with power and control because he is our great God, our good God. Let me pray this prayer over you today. I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, First Christian Church, being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints, all of us together, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or all we can imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.